Acts 5, 17 to 21. When you get there, say, I'm there. Man, some of you guys are quick. Oh. You guys have a note sheet and pen or pencil or something like that ready to take some notes? Are you guys attentive and awake and alert? You ready to rock and roll? I mean, how can you not be after worship like that? I was just getting loose back there. It was just, man, it's so good to worship God just passionately with love in our hearts. Thank you, Alan and the team, for leading us that way. That was beautiful. Um, so I'm excited to be with you guys again. Uh, I get the blessed privilege and opportunity to, uh, to pastor at this church and to be an elder on the board and, man, to preach the word of God to you guys week in and week out. I, I just ask my wife how I feel about that. I'll be in my office or study at home and, and I'll be right in the middle of study and it takes me about two days to get a sermon together. And uh, I'll just come out and yell at my wife, I'm supposed to be doing this with my life. How, how often do I say that? Rachel, I'm supposed to be doing this. And she's just like, I know. Gosh, you say that every Thursday and Friday about three times a day. But man, what a wonderful blessing it is to, to be a pastor and to be a proclaimer of the gospel and a, and a preacher of God's word. God's word is just amazing, isn't it? Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Wow. So, right now we are currently working our way through the book of Acts. Um, we're in a series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses, as a new church, as a church plant. Uh, the other leaders and I kind of prayed through and decided to work our way through the book of Acts because it would be a great starting point for a new church. That we could examine the uh, biblical and historical church as it started at its incarnation and began to grow and uh, manifest itself in Jerusalem and beyond and we could look at the leadership and we could look at the saints and how they functioned and operated and, and it would be awesome we believe that we could study these things and, and sort of get our marching orders and gain an identity not so much as by the, looking at the first century church but by the very word of God and what it declares about the first century church and so We've been engaged in this study since, I think, the end of February, maybe a little after that, and it's been great for me, great study for me, uh, very convicting and transformational and challenging. There's been times where I've looked at stuff and just said, I have no idea what that means. God, help me. That's pretty much every Thursday and Friday, but um, good stuff. So we've been kind of working our way through the book, and last week we looked at 513 to 16. Uh, we learned about how personal sin or the personal sin of believers can distract from the mission of the church, uh, which is essentially to preach the gospel in every nation and to make obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. That really is the mission of the church in a nutshell. And, uh, and so we learn that personal sin, when believers engage in sin and, and these things and they let these things into their lives and they... Uh, you know, sin is pervasive and it begins to have this effect on people around them and their families and the church and ultimately sin distracts from the mission of the church. You know, if the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples and that's the target and that's the bullseye we're aiming for, if the leaders of the church and other people in the church are constantly having to deal with the saints who are living in disobedience, who are 
not living in the power of the Holy Spirit, the freedom of the Holy Spirit, um, they spend all their time ministering to the saints, then they're not ministering to the lost, and they're not on mission. And it's not that ministering to the saints who get goofed up here and there, it's not gospel ministry, it absolutely is, but God has illustrated in Matthew 28 that the church has a specific mission, and it's to spend its time advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, making disciples who are obedient unto Christ in all ways, shapes, and forms. And so we kind of learned about that by looking at Ananias and Sapphira and how they pulled time and energy and all that onto their selves, their sinful selves. They're, they were in this deception and lying and looking for this sort of religious prestige, and they pulled attention onto themselves and, and pulled the apostles away from preaching the gospel and stuff. And so those are the examples that we looked at. It was a long sermon. Uh, somebody's supposed to say right there, but it's okay, we don't mind. Nobody said that. Um, but that's, you know, essentially what we looked at. We also saw in that text how multitudes of people were being drawn to Jerusalem because of the signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles. Uh, Jerusalem was becoming uh, just saturated and overwhelmed by folks who were bringing their sick family members and uh, you know, and, and what have you, and they were coming and they were lining the streets, even to the point of putting people in the path that Peter would travel each day from the upper room to the temple to Solomon's portico where he was teaching and the church would gather. They would put people on this path in hopes that just his shadow might overlap someone who was sick and they would be healed by his shadow. And so lots of people gathering because of these wonders and because of the gospel and an amazing thing happening. So that's what we learned last week. This morning, we're going to be looking at, as I said, 517 to 21. And as we move through the text together, I'll identify and define sort of the key themes, uh, the things that I believe that God wants us to focus on, examine, look at, apply. And so I'm going to go ahead and read our, our text and then I'll pray one more time, and then we'll examine it together. Amen? You all ready to go? Praise the Lord. We're looking at 517 to 21. It's a short little section, but profound. <laughs> it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. That is our text of focus today. Let's pray together. Jesus... Uh, we call upon you again, as we have done several times during this service, and as I always say, I don't think we're praying enough during our church services. Uh, this is probably one of the most important moments uh, to, to come to you and to invite you in, uh, to call upon you for discernment, for understanding, for revelation, for application, uh, and all those important things, Christ. So we cry out to you now. Uh, we are 
dull in our hearing and dull in our hearts and calloused and, um, you know, obedience to the Word of God is really the antithesis of what we're about. Even though we've been made new, we still wrestle with those things. And so, Christ, we call upon you to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear the truth of Scripture, apply these things to our lives, transform us. May we leave this place as different people than how we came in. This is your moment, Christ, for you to speak. I'm nothing but really a communicator of your word. It is you that teaches Christ. Teach your people now. Open their hearts and minds to you. May we be blown away by your glory and your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at it together, friends. Let's begin with our first verse, which is 17. Stare at it. It says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, and then in parentheses, the ESV says, that is, this is all that were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and then it says, and filled with jealousy. Let's stop right there. Luke begins this beautiful little section with the word, but. In the section prior to this, 5.13 to 16, we looked at that last week, Luke has been describing the united holiness and purity of the church. He's been describing how the church was on gospel mission, how it was effective in proclaiming the message of the gospel, effective in fellowship, building up disciples and these sorts of things. Really, the entire book of Acts after basically chapter 2, I'd say at 242, that's basically what we've been reading about this whole time is this church on mission. And, and then in our passage last week, we saw about how the church was united in holiness and purity. These young Christians, this new church was radically devoted to holiness and purity. They knew that the mission of the church was really dependent upon those things. Like, you can't go out and proclaim a holy, set-apart message, a divine message, if you're all about the world and living as the world is. You, you just can't do it. You can't go out and teach Jesus and proclaim the gospel and then be getting drunk or be doing these other things. I mean, it's just a total contradiction. And I know we foul up and mess up, and, and there's grace there, I get it, but for the most part, man, it just... You can't proclaim a divine message if you're not filled with the divine and living in holiness and obedience and in purity through the power of the divine. Something that we learn, but for the most part, that's the church that we've been looking at. And in our text, that is interrupted again by the word but, just as it was at 5-1 with Ananias and Sapphira. Again, prior to Ananias and Sapphira, the church was on mission. All these things were happening. The common giving was insane. People were taking care of each other's needs. They were selling homes, and the apostles were just, you know, distributing the proceeds to help the church, to build up the church, to provide for people. All these things were happening. And then we saw, but we're seeing the same thing here Again, all these things are happening, and then Luke says, but what he's telling us is that there was a problem. Something happened. Something interrupted 
the mission of God again to some degree, I suppose. And that's not to say that there weren't people on mission during this thing, but there was an interference. There was an attack. Something happened. Now, Luke says that the high priest rose up. And then the party that he oversaw and belonged to, which was the Sadducees, came with him. They rose up. Now, keep in mind that the Sadducees were basically the highest-ranking religious leaders in Israel. We tend to think that the Pharisees were, but the Pharisees were subordinate to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were sort of dual-edged leaders. They were religious leaders in some sense, and they were also political leaders and and. Boy, sometimes when you mix politics, you know, political leading with religious leading, you end up with a real big bloody mess. And, and so that's who they were. They were these highest ranking religious officials or leaders in Israel. And, and they were led by a man named Caiaphas and by a man who was Caiaphas's father-in-law. His name was Annas. He wasn't the official high priest, but he was the former high priest. And he sort of still shared that position with Caiaphas. And so you have these two guys, the high priests, they rose up. They rose up against who? Against the apostles. Now, why did they do this? Why did they rise up against them? Well, I've said this before, but the Sadducees pretty much rejected all things supernatural. Uh, They rejected the existence of angels and the existence of the human spirit or soul. They rejected resurrection. They rejected miracles. They rejected Jesus ultimately and condemned him to death on a cross. 5, 12 to 16 says that the back before in our context, in the passage prior to the one we're studying today, that particular passage says that the apostles had been doing what? Performing many miraculous signs and wonders and that the people gathered from everywhere to see what they were doing and to be healed by them, even from the surrounding towns. Now, multitudes of people gathered on this place. And here you have all these supernatural things that are happening. And the Sadducees are dead set against these sorts of things. They are complete rationalists, and and, uh, they base everything on logic. And I guess today we would say they base everything on science or whatever, and... They only believe in that which can be proved through scientific means or logical or rational means. They only believe in things that are tangible, that they can hold, that they can equate and figure out and analyze in those things. There's big threads of this kind of thinking in our world today and in the church. But that's essentially who they were. And so when you have all these supernatural things taking place at the hands of the apostles, of course these guys are going to be alarmed. They were against these things. They rejected those things. They thought maybe it was a show. I don't know what they thought about it. Things were happening. I don't know how you could deny these things. We're capable of denying just anything, but, I mean, they just, all these things were happening, and here they are, and they're watching it, and it's disturbing to them, and they reject it, and, and they want to stop it, and so they come together, and they mobilize, and they do what? They rise up against the apostles. Now, keep in mind, too, back, that back in 418, the Sadducees commanded the apostles to never mention or teach in the name of Jesus again. <laughs> now, keep in mind that as all these miraculous things and wonders were being done in our prior text, 
that it was all being done in the name of Jesus because it's only in the name of Jesus that any of those things are possible. And so these guys were not only healing and doing all these things, they were doing it all in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, as we learned in prior sermons and things. And so they despised Jesus and hated Jesus and told them and warned them repetitively before the Sanhedrin in prior text, don't teach or don't even speak the name of Jesus again. And so what were they doing? Miracles, supernatural things that only God can do through these men in the name of Jesus. It was troubling to these Sadducees. They were watching all of it. They were watching how the streets were jammed with people and how the apostles were healing them. They watched thousands upon thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Christians gathered in Solomon's portico for teaching and fellowship, all in the name of Jesus. Uh, The temple had basically been, in a way, the temple had basically been or become completely overrun by a bunch of Holy Spirit-filled, crazy, love, Jesus freak, out-of-their-mind, weird lovers. Love, grace, mercy, forsake that old religion. The whole temple, this area that the Sadducees had governed over, had become saturated with a bunch of Jesus freaks. Think about that for a moment. Try to pull that off at the big gold mosque in Jerusalem. They'd probably get up off of prayer to kill you. Whoa! I mean, think about that for a moment. You ever stop to think about that? Remember, the church was growing exponentially. It was 3,000 at first, then 2,000, that was five. And then all of a sudden, the author, Luke, started saying there was a lot of people because they couldn't count them all. Imagine if just 5,000 people gathered in a decent-sized colonnade for worship and fellowship. What would that look like? And there's far more than 5,000 now. Maybe there was 20,000 people coming, (laughs) overrunning this Jewish temple that had Jewish sacrifices and all these things, and they were maintaining their Jewish religion, and all of a sudden all these Christians, which are essentially antithetical to that belief system, are in there freaking out and loving Christ and worshiping and listening to sermons and growing and more and more being added. What might that have been like for the Sadducees? (laughs) Well, they rose up, didn't they? The whole group of them. The whole group of them rose up. Now look at the end of 17. Luke gives us the primary, I'd say, at least in this context, for this particular rising up, he gives us the primary primary motive for it, and that is that they were what? Jealous. They were jealous. The word jealousy here is zealous in Greek. Zealous can have multiple meanings just as Greek words can. I mean, they can mean kind of the same thing, but there's slightly a a slightly different variation or what have you. So zealous can be interpreted a couple of different ways in the English language. Um, Two ways that you can look at it. It can mean to be filled with a burning desire to preserve or guard a possession that you believe is being threatened. We would typically call that zeal. Zealous means zeal in a way, right? You see, you have something in particular that you want to guard and it has sanctity to you and it's, 
it's, it's important, and so, you know, you have great zeal to protect that particular thing or person or whatever it is. So it can mean zeal in that sense, and it can also mean to be filled with animosity toward a rival that you feel is enjoying an advantage. That's what we call jealousy. And so it can mean both things, zeal to preserve something in particular, and it can mean to have a hatred or animosity towards someone who you think is coming up and they're outdoing you or they're better than you or they have more than you or whatever, which is typically what jealousy is. According to the author Luke, the Sadducees were consumed by both of these at the same time. They had this religious zeal that was ultimately propelled by jealousy. If you take both meanings of zealous together, the Sadducees were filled with zeal to preserve their religion, honor, and influence out of jealousy over a new religion that was getting attention, popularity, and more and more followers. You see? In a way, to be jealous over and concerned, well, I would say zealous over your beliefs. I mean, that's a good, inherently a good thing. We need to be zealous for our faith and zealous for what Christ has entrusted to us and all that. But when it becomes when it becomes tainted with the wrong form of jealousy, it becomes a toxic thing. The motive is wrong. Why are we preserving what we believe? Is it because we're called to, or is it because we feel threatened that whatever it is they're secured in or whatever they believe is better than what we have? Essentially, that was what was happening with them. They were filled with great zeal to preserve their religion out of jealousy. Again, thousands upon thousands of Christians in their religious epicenter. And they despised it all. They had crushed Jesus in their minds and hearts. They put him on a cross and he died. They certainly didn't believe that he was resurrected. They taught people that his own disciples had removed his body from the tomb and it was all a farce, right? And so they despised this whole thing that was playing out and they wanted so desperately to preserve Judaism their belief system of works righteousness, of sacrificing to please God, of going through these motions and, you know, and maintaining all these rules and regulations and being polished on the outside and all of this junk. That's why they were jealous. They wanted to preserve that. Um, the message of grace was just completely antithetical to what they believed. There is no way God would do for you something like that. Not our perfect holy God. He demands that you earn your way. Essentially, that's what Judaism and every other world religion teaches. We're not good enough, and so we've got to earn it. And so that's what's going through their minds here. That's what's happening with them. And that's what propelled their jealousy. And think about this. Who was it that was getting saved? It was Jews at this point. Okay, the message was absolutely for Gentiles, but it was really Paul that pioneered that part of the Christian movement. But these were Jews who were being saved, who now went from despising and rejecting Jesus to loving Jesus and receiving him as the Messiah of their nation and of the world. These were people that were Jewish that believed this set of 
rules in this system that had transferred over to this. And so it's not just average folks that are walking around getting saved. These are the very people that the Sadducees think belong to them. These are Jews that are getting saved by the thousands. How alarming would that be if you were a Sadducee? Tremendously. And so they rose up. Now, in a way, you could say that the Sadducees were jealous because their gang members were clicking up with another gang. I've been watching this show called Gangland a lot. Have you ever seen that show? That show will scare the shorts off of you. There's like 80-something episodes, and each program goes over all of the major gangs throughout really the world, but primarily throughout our country. And there are just probably, I mean, 80 episodes illustrates or demonstrates 80 different gangs, but there are hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands. And, and one of the things that's big taboo in the whole gang realm is to go from one gang to an enemy gang. That's a death sentence. And so in a way, it's not a gang and there's not all this violence and weird stuff happening and drug dealing and all that stuff. But in a way, it's like the Sadducees are kind of viewing it in those terms. Like, they're leaving our clique to go to this clique. They're leaving our club to go to this club. Maybe they had a camel club instead of a car club. They had little spinners on the hooves. Who knows, right? I mean, it was just, that's the way they look at it. That's how worldly this way of thinking was that they had, this jealousy-inspired thing and all that. They're leaving our little clique to go to this clique. And ultimately, do you know what that results in for the Sadducees? Less money coming into the temple, which means less properties for them to own, less people for them to manipulate, less people for them to control. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but the temple was one big money reaping racket back in these days. This is precisely why Jesus cleared it two times and condemned those who were conducting business there. I mean, it was a big-time money-making racket, and the Sadducees were the absolute elite of the elite, wealthy beyond, I mean, these, these guys, every family was a Trump. They were blinging. And ultimately, if this religion is gaining converts, they're proselytizing our people, we're going to make less money. And guess what? I'm not going to be able to take that trip to Maui next year. Well, there's all kinds of selfish motive behind all this stuff, propelling this jealousy. You know, tragically, I've seen some of this jealous behavior in churches where pastors get all whacked out and blown out and weird over the fact that people have left their church to go to some other church. Oh, what are they doing? Ah, oh, I've seen this. It's just a weird thing. I mean, I get it, you know, pastors care for their flock and when their flock move on, I mean, I, I can see how that could be a heart thing and, and difficult and all that, but man, I've seen and heard things that just don't belong in that kind of context. Just an anger and a bitterness towards some who would leave their church. It's almost like an insult or an indictment on their ability to lead or a reflection upon their value or something like that. How dare they leave here? How dare they go from here to there? What were they thinking? How immature, how ridiculous for them to do it. Don't they understand that this is the place to be and I'm the guy that's the best teacher? And I mean, none of them would ever say those things out loud, but what's spinning through your mind? 
What's spinning through their minds? How can you get that blown out over that? You know? I've always believed that, well, I guess not always, but recently as a church planner, I've believed that God brings who he wants at your church and he removes people. It's, it's up to him what he does. You're just called to be faithful. And God is the one who brings people and, and removes people and sends them over here. And, and we're all one big body anyways, aren't we? Heaven forbid that it all just take place at Redemption Hill or Calvary Temple or, you know. No, the church is massive. It's everywhere. These are just gathering places for teaching and worship. And so why would we get all jealous and bowed out and blown out over these things, but it happens all the time, and, and it's not just with pastors as people leave their churches, you know, they get jealous over that, but I've seen, you know, servant leaders get all twisted and crazy on each other, they feel a little threatened by so-and-so's giftedness, because maybe in their mind he's a little better at teaching, or he's a little better at pastoral care, whatever it is, you know, he's a little bit better at putting out the danishes for crying out loud, he lines them up a certain way, and that just ticks me off, you know? I mean, people get crazy over these kinds of things. Churches divide over these kinds of things. It's insanity. Jealousy can cause people to do and to say crazy, crazy, ridiculous things. Listen to what James said about jealousy in James 3.16. Listen to what he said. This is an admonishment to the scattered believers throughout the area of Jerusalem and James said this for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist because the two are essentially the same thing in a way he says for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice <laughs> James wrote that jealousy brings disorder and every vile practice. Now, I wonder what he meant by every vile practice. Can you imagine? Please don't. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a pretty broad statement, right? I think that's an all-inclusive thing, that everything that God despises that's ultimately harmful to his church and one another and individuals' faith and lives and families, those are the kinds of things that come in through jealousy. Jealousy brings disorder. It, it brings in, and God is a God of order, and his church should be orderly, but jealousy brings in disorder, disharmony, disunity. It turns people against one another. Listen to some of these biblical examples that just show how devastating, you know, and how disorderly and how every vile practice can come through jealousy. Think about these things for a moment. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. Genesis 4.8. He didn't like the fact that his brother's offerings were received by the Lord even though he was given specific commands on how to offer and what to offer. He didn't care, but he was jealous that the Lord blessed his brother or favored his brother because of his offerings and he was jealous over that and wanted things in his terms, grew in jealousy and ultimately committed the first murder in the world. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy. It says that in Acts 7, 9. King Saul persecuted and pursued David out of jealousy. You ever read some of those historical texts? That pursuit of David went on for a long time. You're reading the chapter after chapter after chapter, and you're wondering when it's going to end. When is this poor David going to get some relief? Good night. This guy's after him like a badger. 
over and over. He pursued him all throughout the wilderness of Israel, of Palestine, everywhere. He was everywhere searching for him. Why? Because he was jealous of him. David was a stud. Short, ruddy-looking guy, but he was a stud. He was a man after God's own heart, man. Saul despised him because of those things and because of his successes and the way that he was blessed, and he chased him down. The Sanhedrin turned Jesus over to the Romans out of jealousy, Matthew 27, 18. It says so clearly in the text, Jesus knew the reason why they were handing him over, and it was because they were jealous of him. There was more to it than that, but ultimately it was, they were jealous. In Antioch, religious, not over here in the East Bay, but back there, uh, that'd be weird. Mormons probably believe it happened here. Um, no offense. Uh, yes, whatever. In Antioch, Antioch, in Antioch, religious Jews began to openly contradict the Apostle Paul as he preached the gospel. Can you imagine preaching the gospel and having people out there going, Hey! No! It happens in churches. It happened in Big Valley a couple weeks ago, I heard, during that conference thing they had going. They got that guy out of there so quick. Now, whoop, it sucked him right out like, like they had a big Dyson in the corner. Just whoop, went right into the tube and took him out and emptied him out in the street. Got him out of there. He just went crazy and started saying some crazy ballistic stuff. Palestinians, yay! It was weird. But can you imagine this? I mean, Paul is openly proclaiming the gospel to the Antiochians, or whatever you want to call them, he's proclaiming the gospel, and religious, um, religious Jews began to openly contradict him as he preached the gospel, and Acts 13.45 says the reason why they did it was because they were jealous. Crazy things happen with jealous folks. In Thessalonica, religious Jews gathered a mob of riffraff and then attacked the household of a believer named Jason, why? Because they were jealous. Acts 17, 15. You can see the trend here. We've got murder. We've got uh, someone being sold into slavery, betrayed and, and, and given to the Midianites for a buck 19. We've got a, a king who's pursuing a godly man who wants to kill him. We've got the Sanhedrin that ultimately made the call, along with the Pharisees, to turn Jesus over to the Romans. Why? Because they were jealous. Look at all these things. Opposition to the gospel out of jealousy by other religious leaders. Jealousy over how God was blessing this man named Jason and how God was multiplying the ministry that was taking place in Thessalonica. Jealousy by other religious leaders. They just, and they attacked his house, man. They gathered up a mob, it says. What did they try to do? Burn his house down? Beat him up? Kill him? And then in our text, religious Jews, the Sadducees, became filled with jealousy and did what? Look at 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Apostles is meant to denote the entire group of 12, not just Peter and John or any other smaller combination. The Sadducees basically swooped in on the whole group and put them all in public prison. Public prison was a different place from where Peter and John were put back in Acts 4.3. At that time, the first time that the ministry, their ministry was interrupted by these same folks, the Sadducees, the first time they were put in maybe a small holding cell or something of that nature at the temple and it was the um, 
the chief of the temple guard, or the chief of police, we would call him, oversaw them for the evening. And so the first time they were arrested, they were put in this little holding cell or whatever on the temple grounds for those who maybe get out of line during worship or bring in some weird form of worship or something like that. Who knows? But this time, all 12 were placed in Jerusalem's big house or San Quentin. The Pelican Bay or that dungeon that's downtown called the county jail, man. This particular prison held all sorts of criminals like murderers, thieves, robbers, dissenters, zealots, adulterers, and, and common criminals. So this place is completely unlike the place at the temple that holds just people for a moment that have made some religious disturbance. This is the big house, man. This is where capital offenders go. This is where the worst of the worst go, which means that the apostles were basically placed amongst the nation's worst for disobeying the Sanhedrin's first warning, which was do not preach or teach in the name of Jesus again. Now, the Sadducees may have believed that putting the apostles in the big house would cause them to relent. <laughs> the silly question really becomes this, and, and this just, it's hysterical because I thought about this and I started laughing. I love it when God brings humor to my mind as I'm studying because usually it's all serious and Beethoven, dun, 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 you know, and oh, you know, and all of a sudden I'm laughing hysterically, right, like a fool. But the silly question becomes this. After witnessing all the power and miracles of the apostles, what would cause the Sadducees to think that prison cells with little metal bars would be able to contain them? <laughs> I get it. They rejected the idea of miracles and all that, but there's no, I mean, you'd have to be blind and deaf, and you'd have to be at a whole other level to not be able to see what was happening. And maybe you don't give credit to God for it or to these guys or whatever, but you couldn't miss what was playing out, what was happening, what was taking place, right? It was impossible. I mean, these guys were casting out unclean spirits and healing people and, and the lame were being raised up to walk and all these miraculous things were happening. How do you miss this, right? And then how do you not think in your mind, okay, they're doing all this stuff, even though we reject its foundation and its source, which is Jesus and all this, these things are happening. Let's go put them in a flimsy jail cell. I mean, where's the, where's the line of thinking here? that would cause them to believe that they could just stick these guys who were performing nearly endless miracles in a prison cell, and that would hold them. I find that to be funny. That's just silly to me. I know how we'll stop them. We'll stick them in jail. The rationale for this kind of thinking, the rationale for this kind of thinking is the belief that Christianity is merely human, or that it's man-made, which means that it's essentially powerless and futile. All throughout history, people have viewed our beliefs this way and have sought to bring the church to an end through threats and persecution and through murder and, in some cases, through acts of genocide towards Christians. Millions upon millions of Christians have been subjected to this kind of thinking and the atrocities that come with it. According to current research, 105,000 Christians are killed each year in our world. That's one every five minutes. 
Think about that for a moment. The population of Turlock and Keys and maybe even Oakdale and Riverbank together, that's probably about 100,000 people. That's how many, all those people, that's how many Christians are martyred every year. One every five minutes. This service began at 10 a.m. Count up the minutes to see how many of our brothers and sisters were murdered for their faith in that short amount of time. Every five minutes, some believer is put to the sword or whatever. Every five minutes. Every five minutes. And the truth is, if Christianity were merely human, it would have been brought to an end long ago, right? If it were just a human invention, I don't think it would have made it past Nero who came and turned all of the power and resource of Rome against the church during the latter part of the first century. If the church were merely human, I don't think it would have made it past the first century. I don't think it would have made it past the book of Acts during that time period, up into the 70s, 80s. It is doubtful that the church would have made it past Nero or anyone else who's come down the pike and who has been against the church and persecuted the church. But the fact of the matter is the church endures. Why? Because it is a divinely appointed institution which is led by the incorruptible and invisible divine head, Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus once said to the Apostle Peter, and I had Mike read this text earlier. I'm not reading the whole text, but he said this to him. It was from Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not what prevail against it. This was an all-out declaration against every enemy of the Lord and every enemy of his church. Nothing will stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Nothing. Satan and his minions cannot and will not stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Communists and fascists cannot and will not and will never stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Dictators and emperors cannot and will not and never will stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Kings and queens cannot stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Presidents, politicians, and legislatures cannot stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Other religions, no matter how fanatical they may be, no matter how violent they may be, cannot stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. Islamic jihad will not stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. The Antichrist cannot and will not stop Christ from advancing and perfecting his church. And even deceptive, self-consumed, self-glorifying Christians like Ananias and Sapphira cannot and will not stop Christ from advancing his church. Nothing will stand against it. Nothing. You hear me? Nothing. Why? Because it's been appointed by a sovereign divine. And because it's overseen and led by Christ. If it were merely human, it'd be gone. 
had been gone a long time ago. It's not a human invention. It has been ordained by a sovereign God. And he will maintain it and build it and expand it and grow it and cultivate it and transform it into the image of his son someday in all glory when Christ returns. I'm a little bit passionate about Christ's church. If I wasn't, I don't think we would have came together and planted one. Oh, 2,000 years of church history testify to the truth that the church will endure. The church has endured every attack, and it continues to grow exponentially. There may be 105,000 Christians martyred each year, but estimates show that another 30 million are added each year. Do you hear me? Yeah, I get it. Statistics are difficult, and how do we know everyone's really legit and all that, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get it. But estimates seem to show that God is in the business of saving people and growing his church. For every 105,000 that are taken to be with him, which is a glorious thing in the end, millions are saved on top of that every year. Over 30 million. Oh. That's 57 per minute. Every minute that passes, 57 new people in Christ. That's amazing. God is doing a work in our world. Seems to be very stagnant here in the States, doesn't it? It's amazing what he's doing in other places. 82,000 people a day are coming to the Lord. The stats are broken down like this. you got about 6,000 that are coming to the Lord in faith in North America and Europe. 6,000 out of the 82. We should be ashamed of ourselves. That's a pretty low number if you ask me. 6,000. 32,000 a day in Africa. 25,000 a day in Asia. 17,000 a day in Latin America. And 33,000 people are giving their hearts and lives to Jesus in third world countries. The majority of people that, are, that God is saving is in places that we've probably never even heard of. Or we've heard of Lucy, loosely like Papua New Guinea or something of that nature. Estimates show that there may be as many as 230 million Christians in China today. That's 70 million short of the total population of the United States. We have about 300 million people here. China, the amount of believers in China has almost surpassed the amount of people that live in the good old U.S. Now that's incredible to me. Tim Gardham, a BBC reporter, wrote that there are more people going to church on Sunday in China than in all of Europe. Europe has 700 million people. China has, I don't know, a couple billion. But there are more people going to church in China than there are going to church in Europe. More people show up at church on a Sunday morning, churches on, a Sunday, on Sunday mornings, and some of them are underground and some of them are public. They have public churches there. We've been fed some misinformation. They do have churches there. They have to be sanctioned by the government. But more people are going to church in China than are going to church in all of Europe. And Europe is pretty big. That's a pretty sad statistic for Europe. Again, what did Christ say? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
The Bible itself testifies to the enduring truth of Jesus' words there. While the apostles were behind bars at the big house, look at what happened next. Look at 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, stop there. The text says an angel of the Lord came and let them out. Angels appear in the scriptures fairly often, especially in the Old Testament. Angels um, possess special abilities, and they are more powerful than human beings, the scripture says. In most cases, angels are used by God to deliver messages or encouragement or orders or something of that nature. Typically, we think of angel, we think of messenger, and that's a good way to think of them. Uh, Think of Hagar, uh, a woman Hagar, which was... Uh, tied to Abraham. Think of her when she was driven from the, uh, the household of Abraham to the wilderness of Beersheba by Sarah in Genesis 21. I don't know if you remember that storyline, but you think of this gal who f- was basically kicked out of Abraham's home and was with her son Ishmael and roaming around in the wilderness of Beersheba, and she ran out of water. She began to think that her son might die of thirst. She became very dismayed and filled with despair and worry. And verses 17 to 18 of Genesis 21 say, the angel of God called out to her and encouraged her, gave her a message of encouragement. I have a plan for you and for your son. Don't despair. You're not going to die out here. I know they've mistreated you. Sometimes God sends angels to protect people and to make war against his enemies. There is a special angel that appears in the Old Testament here and there. He is called the angel of the Lord. Many scholars believe the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. They call the appearances of the angel of the Lord Christophanies, which are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Interestingly, and there might be truth, uh, truth to support this theology, but interestingly, the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament dozens and dozens of times and never once in the New Testament. The angel of our text is not the angel of the Lord. He is a standard type of angel, if you will, and he may have been assigned to the apostles as a protector. God does that. This angel may have been the 12's personal protector or maybe the protector of Peter or something of that nature. He was a standard angel, and then in the middle of the night, he came and opened the cell door. Apparently, he didn't need a key. God's use of an angel to free them, <laughs> another funny thing, was especially ironic since the Sadducees, the Sadducees denied the existence of angels. <laughs> we tend to think of God as this father time figure who has no sense of humor or personality or anything, and Oh, you know, and it's just serious, serious, serious. God has a sense of humor. You don't believe in angels? I'll have one open up the cell. You can't even see him, but there's the door. Ah, You know, or whatever, right? Isn't that cool? God has a sense of humor. He sends something they don't believe in to open the cell door. An angel. I love it. Now, this particular passage reminds me of what Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3 6 Jesus said this to them I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut 
the church at Philadelphia was suffering persecution at the hands of religious Jews. Sounds similar to what is happening in our text to the apostles, doesn't it? In Revelation 3, Jesus exhorted the Philadelphians to hold fast to the truth, to stay on gospel mission, and not to fear their persecutors because he himself the resurrected Son of God had made a way for them to succeed by opening the door to gospel mission. They would succeed no matter what because it was Him that opened the door and kept it open for them. Beautiful. Jesus opened the door to the ministry of those from Philadelphia. Jesus opened the door to the ministry of the apostles. And guess what? Oh, you can get put behind bars for a, a, an hour or two, but the gate's, the gate's not staying shut. I've put them on mission. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And so the door opens. They were freed. After freeing the apostles from their prison cell, the angel commanded them to do something very important. Look at 20. He said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The angel commanded that they go back to Solomon's portico to present to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life are a reference to the words that Jesus spoke, which would include all Scripture, not just the red letters, because Jesus is the living word, John 1.14. Notice how the word life is capitalized. It should be capitalized in your translation. It is in mine. It is capitalized because it is a specific reference to Jesus who is what, according to Acts 3.15, the author of life. Jesus came as a preacher preaching the word of life, the gospel, which is the message of salvation or spiritual new birth through faith in his atoning work, resurrection and person. The words of life here are also called the word of God in Acts 13.46. The word of God is a reference to all scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Both Old Testament and New Testament point to, again, Jesus, who is the author of life and Savior of the world. The angel's big point here in telling them to go and, and speak to the people all the words of this life. His big point was for the apostles to go back to Solomon's portico to speak the very words that bring spiritual life and salvation, the gospel, to people. Bottom line, the angel freed them so that they could return to doing what they were doing before they were arrested and imprisoned. One of the great questions for us then becomes, you know, how do we respond in these situations when God calls down to us to be obedient in any given situation? How quick, how expedient are we to obey? How do we respond when, when he sends a messenger through his word or he sends a message through his word or through a preacher or maybe through an angel? That can happen. How do we respond? How quick are we to respond in obedience? How did the apostles respond? Look at 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The apostles were freed in the middle of the night and then went at daybreak to Solomon's portico to start teaching again, as they had done before. Daybreak was a couple hours before morning prayer, which was at 9 a.m. 
shortly before 9 a.m., multitudes of people would begin to gather in the temple courts. The apostles were already there preaching to probably early birds, people who were showing up early for prayer, or to groundskeepers, those who were in charge of taking care of the grounds, and probably to some of the merchants that were showing up there because there were some merchants there. By 9 a.m., they would have been ready, the apostles would have been ready to proclaim the gospel to the masses. They were already there, prayed up and preaching to smaller groups or to individuals. Maybe the church had began to gather there prior to prayer and they were preaching the gospel back to the church because the church needs the gospel preached to them every weekend. We think it's just for non-believers. It's for believers. We need to keep hearing about the finished work of Christ. You know, but they were there and they were ready, man, and they were there at daybreak. So that was probably, what, two or three hours before morning prayer when the masses would come? By the time the masses started showing up, man, they were good to go. They were ready. Entering it at daybreak shows us a couple of really cool things about the apostles. And I kind of alluded to one already. One of them was their quickness to obey the command of God. This is so important for us. The apostles didn't wait a couple of days. They didn't wait more hours than they should have. They didn't wait weeks or years to return to the temple to teach. They went at the next available moment when there would be people present to hear them. They even went a little early to get prayed up and warmed up. I'm pretty sure that the apostles would have gone to the temple right after being freed if it would have made sense. They were freed in the middle of the night. I could see them at the beautiful gate waiting for maybe it to be unlocked and opened, and they'd be like those gals on those dumb Mervyn's commercials, open, open, open. I can see them doing this. I mean, these guys desired to be obedient. They were radically obedient. They loved God. That's why they were obedient. I can see them there. They get freed, and they don't eat, and they don't drink. They don't do anything, but they walk right over. Open, open, open. Man, these guys wanted to obey. They wanted to get in there and exercise their ministry. Amazing. These guys displayed, and I hated those commercials. Man, they aired those things about every 28 seconds. Do you remember them? Open, open, open. And every time I thought about that, we've never really been Mervyn shoppers, but I kept saying, God, close my wallet, close my wallet, close my wallet. If Rachel is there, she'll do some damage. Now, we never really went to Mervyn's. And they ended up closing up anyways, didn't they? I don't know, that was a weird place. Beano's, open, open, open. How many of you go back that long? Remember Beano's? All they sold there was beans. No, that's not true. And what about Gemco? They used to charge you a buck to get into that place. Like you go up and you have to pay a buck to get in there, and you're thinking, what's the attraction? Low prices? I don't get it. You just took a buck from me. Really weird. Now, enough of those shenanigans. These guys, these apostles, displayed great quickness to obey the command of God. Why? Because they loved God. How quick, again, are we at obeying the command of God? How quick are your kids at obeying the command of you? (laughs) Do they sandbag or what? Mine think that as soon as I tell them to do something, they've got like a two-hour grace period. It's been activated. I've got two hours to now do that. Then when they see me coming at them, they know that, oh, the grace period wasn't enacted for this particular scenario. How quick are we to obey 
the command of God when we see it so plainly in Scripture or when we hear it audibly and that can happen. When someone, a brother, is used by the Lord to, to guide us in something, how quick are we to obey? It's a great question. And they've set for us, before us, a great example of expedience, quickness, haste to be obedient. Being threatened. They just were in jail, and here they are going right back at the next available time. Talk about clout. Talk about boldness. Talk about Holy Spirit fire. Wow. Second thing, the apostles had done as their Lord and Master Jesus had done. John 8, 2 says that Jesus went to the temple at sunrise or at daybreak to teach the people and many gathered to him. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, which was more often than we tend to think because there were all kinds of festivals and things that he attended, when he was there, his custom was to go to the temple very early in the morning to teach. When the Lord did this, he brought his disciples with him and they listened and learned alongside the common folks. Being at the temple at daybreak shows that the apostles desired to do as Jesus had done. They wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to do as he had done. They wanted to live disciplined lives like him. There was great discipline. There is great discipline in getting up early to study, to pray, and to proclaim the word of God or whatever it is. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to emulate him. They wanted to be disciplined like him. And ultimately, they wanted to be his spokespersons at the same place that he taught at, even at the same time that he had taught in the past, which was at daybreak. You see the obedience and the strong, passionate desire to be like the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit here? What an amazing thing. I have some ending thoughts and questions for us. A couple of themes that have been pulled out of this. We've got a little bit of time left. First one would be, would be this. Where are we at with jealousy? Are any of us consumed with it? Has jealousy led you like a Pied Piper to folly and trouble? Has jealousy brought turmoil and disorder to any of your relationships, to your household, to your church? The Sadducees were jealous over the attention Jesus and the apostles were getting. They were jealous because people were leaving their old legalistic religion for Christ. You know, I truly believe that jealousy ultimately comes from being dissatisfied with Christ and with what he's given you. Think about that for a moment. If you're satisfied in Christ, then you're going to be satisfied with what he has given you to be a steward over. There really isn't any room for jealousy in the life of someone who is consumed with Christ and satisfied with Christ and fulfilled in Christ, in loving relationship with Christ. Jealousy ultimately comes from being dissatisfied with Jesus and with what he's given you. You think that other people are better than you, smarter, more talented, and maybe they are. You think that what they have is greater or better than what you have 
oh, they've got all these things at their home, and I'm so jealous and covetous. I just wish I had all these things. To maintain that attitude and that sort of jealous heart and spirit is to proclaim to Christ that I'm not satisfied in what you've given me, in who you've made me to be, in who you are. That's what jealousy is. It is the bad fruit of being dissatisfied with Christ. Well, the good news is the remedy is in the gospel. Believing in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the remedy. Having life in Christ, security in Christ, and identity in Christ is the remedy. Only Christ can satisfy you the way that you need to be satisfied. The deepest part, spiritually, even beyond that. And when you become satisfied in Christ, you can then be satisfied in who He's made you to be and in what He has given you. You see what the gospel does? Do you see why Christians need to hear the gospel over and over and over? And why the world needs to hear it? Everybody's fighting over what everyone else has in this dog-eat-dog world, even in the church. We're a covetous, jealous people who are infatuated with what others have, and in some cases, in their spouses. Ultimately, we're not satisfied in Christ, and there's a tremendous need there for the gospel to saturate those areas, to cover us, for us to be satisfied in Christ and Him alone. Only then can we accept who we are and receive what He's given us with joy. See, that's the work of the gospel. That's the work that Christ achieved on Calvary through Him, through faith in His person and work. Satisfaction comes. The Sadducees didn't believe that God could or would free the apostles from prison. Obviously, they put them in there and they thought that they would languish in there and they would forsake their ministry. Here's a great question for us. Do we believe that God can free us from our physical, emotional, or spiritual prison cell? (laughs) Think about your own physical life right now, your chemistry, who you are. Think about maybe the illnesses or the afflictions or the depression, the anxiety, the addictions, the flesh struggles. Are we to believe that God is incapable of dealing with these things? The one who sent an angel to free these men so that they could stay on mission? It could very well be that God desires to deliver you from some of these things so that you can get back on mission or on mission for the first time. Bringing the gospel to the world, making disciples who obey Christ. All things are possible with God. Do we believe that? Maybe some of us haven't been pressed lately, and there's no reason for us to believe that because we don't have any struggles or any problems. I find that hard to believe. How about an emotional prison cell, which could very well be one of the worst? Emotional prison cell would be being tormented by past traumatic experiences. Things that you've gone through that others have 
taken you through. You didn't want to go through it, but they took you through it, and it hurts. Are we to believe that God can't rescue you from your emotions? Oh, you may deal with that the rest of your life, but are you to believe that God can't heal your soul, your heart, bring you through it, teach you through it, cause you to become a great teacher of similar experiences with others who are going through those things? How about the emotional prison cell of betrayal? Some of us have been betrayed. There may be some in this room that just didn't have a chance as a child you were betrayed by those who were entrusted to care for you. And they didn't do it. Maybe they abused you. Emotional prison being hurt by others. Maybe part of our emotional prison is that we just wrestle with jealousy over others all the time. Are we to believe that the same God who rescued these men from prison so that they could get back on mission, who sent an angel, are we to believe that the same all-powerful God cannot heal us from our emotional baggage, from our pain, from our past hurts and hang-ups? And how about spiritual prison cell? And that would include things like doubts. Maybe you know the Lord and you're just riddled with doubt all the time. Spiritual really covers all of them, but it would include being satisfied in Christ. You know, only Christ can meet that deepest need, what C.S. Lewis called that hole in your heart. Only Christ can meet that through His divine power, through His gift of salvation, through the glorious work of regeneration. About spiritual torment or an emotional or spiritual prison of, of feeling unworthy, God would never save someone like me. He just wouldn't do it. I know me. Or maybe you're someone who's imprisoned spiritually and you lack spiritual discipline. You don't read the word. You don't pray much. You're not a priest of your home as you should be, husband. You're not leading your girlfriend the way that you should. Your relationships. Are we to believe that the God who sent an angel to free these men so that they could return to their ministry can't satisfy us spiritually, can't save, can't rescue, can't redeem, can't regenerate? can't encourage us and exhort us and pick us back up because the world's beating the snot out of us? Are we to believe that that's an impossibility? Friends, the answer is no. God is mighty. Do you believe it? Do you believe? And if you have doubts, have you asked God to help you with your unbelief? We serve a mighty God. We sang four songs in a row that declared that so poignantly. When will we begin to believe it? Some of us do. 
May we believe it as a church. God is sovereign over these areas of our lives, that He cares for us physically, that He wants to use those things to shape our character and to transform us through those things. And maybe physical healing doesn't come because He has another plan. That could possibly be. But that doesn't mean that He's not at work through it. But God can rescue us from our emotional turmoil and problems, and He most certainly can save. His arm is not too short to save spiritually. That's the very reason why Christ came. May we believe it.